0: In 2009, New York Post reporter Susanna Cahalan suddenly experienced a host of terrifying symptoms, hallucinations, paranoia, seizures. She spoke in gibberish and ultimately ended up in a catatonic state. Some of her doctors thought she must be mentally ill, but it took a wise physician to figure out the truth. She'd been afflicted with a rare autoimmune disease that can attack the brain. It's called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Uh, Cahalan would investigate her her own experience, she published the details in her acclaimed 2012 memoir, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. But the topic of mental illness continued to seize her attention. She found herself intrigued by an influential 1973 study. It was called On Being Sane in Insane Places by psychologist David Rosenhan, and it changed the history of psychiatric care in this country. But as Kahalen learned when she went in-depth in researching it, parts of what Rosenhan reported weren't true. Kahalen's latest book details her findings. It's called The Great Pretender, the undercover mission that changed our understanding of madness, and it is such a good read. Oh. So, Susanna Kahalen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And for those of you listening out there, do you have a question or comment about the way mental illness is diagnosed or treated in this country? You can give us a call at 314 382 8255. That's 382 TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air. The cat or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, Susanna, you wrote this memoir about your own diagnosis, and this new book goes in a much different investigative direction. So what led you into this study by David Rosenhan? You
1: know, it it came very much from a a personal place, and it it was born out of Brain on Fire. So in in the aftermath of experiencing these symptoms of of serious mental illness, I mean, I was hallucinating, I was psychotic, you know, understandably, in, in a way, misdiagnosed. And as I emerged from that, And wrote the book. I was inundated with you know calls and emails, uh, in you know contact from um, you know various people who who wanted to share. You know there were various levels. You know some people wanted this the same or searching for a diagnosis and ultimately got a diagnosis based on reading my book. But there were other people who felt lost within the mental health system. And those were the ones who really stuck with me. And I started to ask certain questions like, what is mental illness? And what is the difference between what happens to me and someone who, say, is diagnosed with schizophrenia? And those questions are to percolate. Um, around the time I met a young woman who I would call, I met a doctor of a young woman who I would call my mirror image. Mm-hmm. Um, she was hospitalized for two years on and off in a psychiatric hospital in North Carolina. And I actually went to her hospital and presented about my case and talked about autoimmune encephalitis. And while there, um, afterwards, a doctor came up to me and said, I think we have someone who might have what you have. And Realizing I, that this patient there had been misdiagnosed. Yes. <laughs> and she was she was tested, and she ultimately was misdiagnosed. And that made me question, what is mental illness? What do we mean by these terms? Yeah,
0: here she is in a asylum, so right. to speak. And like you, it turns out she did not actually belong there. And it, it sounded like from in your book, um, although you're not quite sure what happened, to her that because it wasn't caught soon enough, it might have been a much worse outcome than what happened to you. Absolutely. In fact, her doctor described it to me in chilling terms.
1: He said she would be remain a permanent child. Oh my Which, God! You know, I recovered fully. I was treated and I was treated and diagnosed, etc. In a month, uh, you know, it took me a long time to recover, but I'm a very lucky case. You know, in a many in many ways, I'm a medical marvel. And I thought of all the people who a were being misdiagnosed who had what I had, but also people who felt lost within the mental health system who didn't have my
0: diagnosis and also didn't feel like they were getting the right answers. They maybe really belonged there, but mm-hmm. they weren't getting treatment that was helping them. Exactly. Exactly. So tell us about this study. That you ended up getting connected with—it's such a fascinating study. Even if it turned out the whole thing was true, it would be a fascinating topic for a book. Absolutely, and that's how I went into this book. So, um, so
1: around that time that I met this mirror image, I went out with two neuroscientists, and I, I told them this story eh, about her. And one of them turned to me and said, "Oh, you're a modern-day pseudo patient," and I, I didn't know what they meant by that. What's and a pseudo patient? What's a pseudo So that night, I—you know—this this woman sent me the study and. I, I opened it up, and I remember it's, it, the title itself is so evocative, right? On being sane in insane places. It's almost biblical in its yeah. intonation, right? So I started reading it, and it's amazing. It, it's a it's it's a daring experiment where eight people, eight volunteers from various walks of life, a housewife, a painter, uh, you know, a a professor of psychology, all these people went undercover in psychiatric hospitals around the country. And what they were doing was testing the nature of diagnosis and also reporting back about their experiences as patients, as pseudo patients undercover. And, you know, they all presented in the same way. They said, they told doctors, they only had one symptom. I hear a voice that says, thud, empty, or hollow. It's so 1970. It totally is. That's so funny. Yeah, and and just based on that, however, you know, all of them were diagnosed with serious mental illness. In fact, all but one with schizophrenia. The the one remaining person was diagnosed with manic depression, and that became that was pretty embarrassing to the field at the time. I think.
0: Yeah. So according to this paper, yeah. um, these people are in insane asylums for periods of time that, in some cases, go up to multiple weeks, yes. and yet none of the doctors ever realize that they're sane. The people who get checked out, it's sort of presented that they have it under control, but no one's saying, You're a fraud, get out of here. Absolutely. And in fact,
1: what's so funny about the paper, and, and again, the paper reads almost like fiction. <laughs> yeah, but um, there's at one point um, a pac- various patients actually identified the pseudo patients as fakers and said things like, You're a journalist undercover, or you're reporting about the institution. But not one
0: staff member did the same thing. So you can see, I mean, this is quite an indictment of what the mental health system was at the time. What was the impact this paper ended up having? I mean, you can't really
1: uh, overplay uh, the impact the paper had. And it, it had subtle ways that continue to affect us today. I mean, on one level, it confirmed many of the fears that the lay public had about psychiatry and its institutions. And those were embodied in things like One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest or Snake Pit the film. There were a lot of exposés at the time about the horrors of your kind of local psychiatric hospital that were very much found, you know, based in truth. They were warehousing people in terrible places and for by and large. And it also what it also did was it was an it was a real indictment of the fear. Field, um, it's like of psychiatry, which was at the time going through an identity crisis. It was moving away from Freud, and it was going towards a more biological model, but it didn't quite know where their place was in medicine. And then there comes this study to expose all of its limitations and issues. And uh, one one psychiatrist at the time actually described it as a sword plunged into the heart of psychiatry so they were vid- a yeah. so, yeah, beautiful writer too but you know uh, it, they it, the, you know the, the field itself
0: w- was having a reckoning and this study aimed right at the heart of it so it seems like it was great timing and then also it, these findings are just shocking they don't even know who's sane right. how can they then treat us but as you started to realize this thing just doesn't add up when what was your first clue that, oh man, I think I'm actually onto a phony study. So it's really, you know, it came in waves.
1: So I first read this study. I identified so much with it. I I saw so much of myself in it. I saw my own misdiagnosis. I saw the way doctors see people patients through the prism of their, of, their il- you know, of their diagnosis. These are all things I related to, and they were beautiful. Um, but as I started to dig deeper, um, and I got access to the um, ringleader of the study is a man named David Rosenhan. And I got access to his unpublished book, his diary entries, reams of correspondences that that kind of chronicled his career at Stanford, where he was a psychology professor. And bit by bit, certain things started to bother me. Um, And I I think I pushed them back at first because I was such a fan of the study. But there were inconsistencies. Number of days kind of seemed to Uh, You know, sometimes he would say the average day average day was far more than what actually was written in the paper. I saw saw issues with the numbers, but then bit by bit other kind of more substantial issues started to emerge
0: and also questions of, you know, why didn't he publish this unpublished book? Yeah, so he got a major book contract because of this study. And then never ended up submitting a final manuscript. What did you find about um when he abandoned that book, how far he got? He was pretty much done with it.
1: And it would have made him, he was already an academic celebrity. I mean, he was on a lot of news, pro, TV programs, tons of radio shows. He was a media darling in a way, because it, again, it confirmed a lot of our feelings about what psychiatry was doing. And this book would have cemented his place in kind of the academic greats. And I don't know why he didn't, well, I know I didn't know why, and I still don't fully, but you know, it, it really bothered me. He had he had over 200 pages written it was ready to go he had an editor there who was so excited about publishing it and yet he never delivered it and i and i and i wondered why and then I, there are other issues too mm-hmm. you know in his private notes he kept the names of all the participants in the study He kept them, he obscured them, and he misdirected and he changed things in ways that felt strange. These are his private notes. Who is he protecting and why? Mm -hmm. So those are the first kind of um, things that started to lead me down a path of questioning the study in general.
0: It was really interesting. I mean, you spent such a big chunk of this book sort of explaining your reporting process as you were chasing one false lead after another. And maybe part of it is that I used to be a reporter, but just, you know, following that, I thought the reader gets really invested in you fully getting to the bottom of this. And I don't want to give away too much, but ultimately there's still a number of things that you're never fully able yes. to prove by the end. Were you frustrated in that? I mean, you must have wanted a definitive oh. yes or no. Did these eight patients exist? Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking that
1: you would you relate to the kind of odyssey of the journalistic enterprise part of this because, you know, it was a different book. I, I, when I first was starting this book, I called it Committed and it was a celebration. And as, the, you know, these other mm-hmm. questions and more, you know, greater questions started to emerge, the great pretender started to take on Multiple meetings, and you know, and at various points, I thought this isn't a book. You know, when I couldn't find those pseudo patients, I really wanted something hard and fast and solid. And I think I also felt the same way about psychiatry. Mm-hmm. I was looking for hard, black and white answers where there's so much gray. And, and so it, they kind of my my quest to understand my place in the history of psychiatry, which is a thread throughout this book too, and also my quest to try to understand where the validity and legitimacy of this study was, they started dovetailing and echoing and mirroring each other in ways that I I never could have seen coming. And
0: it makes it so interesting. I can see why as a writer, at one point you might have thought, I don't have any book at all, but yeah. it ends up becoming such a fascinating book because these questions dovetail in a way that, to some extent, you end up telling the history of how mental illness was handled in the, the 20th and early 21st century. It's it's just, I cannot rave enough about this book. <laughs> um, now, you did talk to so many people who had known David Rosenheim. Yes. What did they tell you about him? Well, you know, it's funny. I never met him because he died a year before
1: I started this. And
0: book. so many people that you needed to talk to for this book died within two yes. or three years of you working on it. It's I know. No, it's like a curse or something. But you know it, what I—the
1: the you know thing repeated again and again. This was a charismatic man, and I could see that very much through this study. I mean, there's—I'll give you an example of the kind of mind at work here in this in the original study on being sane and insane places. At one point, he tells a hospital, "I'm sending pseudo patients to you over three month period, and you tell me you find the pseudo patient because they felt oh, we we it would never happen here. Yeah, we would catch this exactly. So they report back with forty one. Possible, probable pseudo patients. And he reveals in this kind of wonderful line that he hadn't sent one. Not one pseudo-patient. That's the kind of mind at work here. And he was he was funny. He was charming. And in, in a way, he wasn't great-looking, but he was very seductive. And his his, his colleagues and his students are just, they, they kind of sounded like they were in awe. And mm-hmm. and I had a little bit of that,
0: too, especially in the beginning. And yet some of them became very suspicious um, that his things just didn't check out. This was someone who kind of played a bit fast and loose yes. with the truth. It's, it's interesting how their impressions, while they didn't do anything, anything with him at the time, they clearly ended up feeding your suspicions.
1: I mean, even his son, who loves his father and very much respects him, described his father to me as a storyteller. Hmm. You know, he's a raconteur. He's a storyteller. He was the life of the party. You know, this is someone who, who I could see... It, it, when I started to reveal some of the issues,
0: not many people were surprised. People didn't push back. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to author Susanna Cahalan. Her new book is The Great Pretender, the undercover mission that changed our understanding of madness. And she's in St. Louis to do a reading uh, tonight at Dot .zach um, if people are interested in this topic. Now, you... Uh, write quite a bit about how this movement, that this study really helped speed up, it ended up dealing with the dismantling of insane asylums in the U.S. And today, you write, it's harder to get a bed in New York City's Belleville Hospital than to land a spot at Harvard University. At the same time that there's so many mentally ill people who who could use help, maybe use a, a place of quiet refuge, why do you think nobody has devised a system to replace the one that got thrown out? I mean, great question. I think there's there are a few things at work. You know,
1: I think that you follow the money. You know, we have obviously not prioritized mental health care in this country. And I think part of that honestly comes back to some of some things like this study that vilified these hospitals in some ways very fairly because sometimes they deserved it. They were very bad
0: places. Yes. In many cases. In
1: many cases. But as I found in my book, the story might not be as simple as that. And, you know, there was something that I discovered. I discovered Someone who I refer to as the footnote, who revealed to me that um, maybe there's a new, more nuanced discussion. Maybe closing down these hospitals was not just the right answer to do. You know, we had to do something, but that maybe wasn't the right thing. And I think if you follow the money and also follow, follow public opinion, you can you find your way to where we are now.
0: And it's interesting because all these problems were exposed at these institutions that, in many cases, were very bad. And yet, as you write today, the people who ended up there back in the day now we're sending them to jail and yeah. what we're doing in jail is in many ways even more barbaric yes. in the treatment of these people that
1: was horrifying to me Th- that this whole odyssey of learning um, how many people are in our prison and jail systems who suffer from serious mental illness was disgusting i couldn't believe where we are today and in many ways you know i, I write about Nellie bly right who was this amazing reporter who went undercover in, in a, a women's asylum in the 19th century and she describes a horror show i mean bathed in a bathtub with with dead vermin and feces they don't they didn't change the water for all the new you know patients you know really disgusting sick things but then I talked to a man named Craig Haney, who does who's a prison reform expert, and he tells me what's going on in Arkansas, et cetera, and it sounds like that. It I mean it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And so you know when you hear the horror stories of people who suffer from who are very sick and end up in probably the worst places to handle them, it was it was a real education for me that I I was just not aware of.
0: Now you're a WashU graduate, and just for our local audience here, in our last couple minutes, uh, WashU makes a cameo in this book, yes. and the psychiatrists there <laughs> were this really influential group. Yeah. Do you think that your alma mater comes off on the right side of history in this oh, debate? That is a great <laughs> question. Okay,
1: well, they, so Washu was kind of a hotbed of anti-Freudian, you know, um, psychiatrists who called themselves neocreplins. Uh, Kreplin was kind of the first to create a diagnostic criteria, um, and he was the first to describe what was called dementia praecox, which we now call schizophrenia, and they—they, they, you know—they loved this kind of push to medicalize psychiatry. They hated the kind of wishy-washy sensibility of Freud, which I, I in many ways, I, I admire. You think they were right about that part? I do, I, in some ways, and I do, but I also think that you know, when you have an extreme reaction, and you start to push away against the past. If you leave everything behind, you're probably making a mistake. There were things that, you know, in the therapy, in the idea of care, in the more kind of wishy-washy parts of, of you know, the clinical experience and the clinical relationship, that I feel like were left behind. And and some of the WashU contingent were were involved in that for sure. That's interesting. Uh, how do you go from graduating from WashU to working at the New York Post? It seems like a really unusual trajectory. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I, I started working at the New York Post when I was 17. I started as an intern there, and um, so you never had this left even going in <laughs> as an undergrad. Yes. You had your tabloid connection. I did. I did. And I'm and I I'm a tabloid girl, you know, through and through. I mean, I, I loved kind of cutting my teeth um, at a place where the most famous headline is headless body and topless bar. And do
0: you <laughs> feel like the re- reporting skills that you gained on that job, um, they must have been great preparation for this kind of investigation where you're going down so many rabbit holes? Absolutely. It also, it gives you a
1: little bit of a fearlessness. Um, you know, these were huge topics and a lot of personalities, and, and there were thorny issues. I think one, one, one historian says that uh, the history of psychiatry is a minefield, and I found that to be the case, but you know, the post they kind of shapes you into someone who just, you'll knock on any door, you'll talk to any person, and, and so I'm very
0: grateful for that education. And it felt like you were able to call foul on the places that needed to call foul, because you were coming at this as an outsider. You weren't beholden to the people in power. That seems like a, a real tabloid trick right there, you know, too. You
1: know, that's so, that's so smart. That, it's so in, like, interesting that you point, pointed that out, because one psychiatrist who I very much re- um, respect, named E. Fuller Torrey, wrote me that. He said, this is a great book for a layperson who doesn't come in with all the preconceived notions that we have that are wrong. And I do feel like as an outsider, but also an insider who have been who has been misdiagnosed, so I have my own biases, I was able to kind of poke at things maybe that people take for granted.
0: That's Susan Cahalan. Her new book is The Great Pretender. Um, she'll be reading it dot Zach this evening at an event that's also hosted by Left Bank Books. If you want information on that, you can find it on our website or on theirs. So Susanna, thank you so much for joining thank us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. KWMU.